1: From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, a landmark deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia is reshaping power in the Middle East and beyond. Saudi Arabia and Iran took a lot of people by surprise when they announced in March that they would restore diplomatic relations, ending a seven-year freeze. Equally unexpected, the deal was brokered not by the US or even the EU, but by China. The details are still being worked out, but already the agreement is expected to have wide-ranging consequences for the region. And to elevate China's standing as a rival to the U.S. in global affairs. Bloomberg correspondent Golnar Motavali.
2: Having this deal with Saudi Arabia is all about shoring up legitimacy overseas.
1: And Sam
3: Dagger. It seems like there's a lot of goodwill here, but at the same time, there are a
1: lot of spoilers. Have been reporting on how the deal came together and what each side hopes to gain. And later in the show, Jonathan Fulton.
4: For China, it's definitely in their interest to have a more stable gulf. They don't want to have to deal with a region that's constantly on the precipice of conflict.
1: He's an authority on the region's relationship with China, and he explains what this agreement means for the shifting balance of power between East and West. Golnar, how did this deal come together?
2: Saudi and Iran had been talking for some time, for about two years, basically since the Biden administration came in and we saw the end of the Trump era for now and the end of the maximum pressure policy on Iran. And that dialogue had been brokered by Iraq and had taken place in the form of talks on a security level and deputy ministerial level in Baghdad. Now, those talks were frozen and halted around this time last year. And then what we saw last month on March the 10th, as you said, was this kind of surprise entry of China into this dialogue between Saudi and Iran, this tentative effort between both countries to cool their relationship, to repair ties, to fix kind of what's been, I think, about 10 years probably of real tension and animosity and quite at sometimes high octane hostility between the two countries. And the deal itself, if you look at the text, there's a lot in there about reviving the trade relationship between the two, working on that, fixing that, cooperating in the region. We know that Saudi Arabia, along with a lot of countries in the Middle East, particularly in the Gulf Cooperation Council and more broadly around the Arab world, are very concerned about Iran's footprint in the region, its influence in different countries in the Middle East.
1: And we're going to be talking more about China's role and what this means for the U.S. and Israel and other countries a little bit later on. But Sam, I wanted to ask you, at the heart of this deal between the two nations is this agreement to restore diplomatic relations. What does that actually look like?
3: Saudi Arabia is majority Sunni, and Iran is is ruled by the Shia creed, it's majority Shia, and Saudi Arabia does have a Shia minority, and this is actually one of the many long-running grievances between the two countries, which even go back to the foundation of the Islamic Republic in 79. So uh, Saudi Arabia has always accused Iran of staring trouble in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, where the Shiites mainly reside. So uh, Saudi Arabia had accused this cleric of ties to terrorism and then sentenced him to death. And this sparked protests in Iran. The Saudi embassy ablaze in Tehran. Iranians are furious after a leading Shia cleric was among 47 men executed in Saudi Arabia on charges of plotting and carrying out terrorist attacks. And a mob attacked the uh, Saudi embassy, and this upset, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia and its Gulf Arab uh, allies, and that led to the rupture of the diplomatic relationship and the basically recalling of the ambassador and the shutting down of the embassies, and and obviously Iran reciprocated.
1: What you described happened in 2016, that's seven years ago, and the two countries— remained isolated from each other until now. Gulnar, if we fast forward to today, can you explain why Iran wanted to renew ties?
2: From Iran's point of view, Iran domestically is facing a major crisis of legitimacy and we've seen over the past couple of months it's on this diplomatic push, traveling, hopping from country to country, really trying to shore up support with people that that haven't shut the door on Iran's face. Having this deal with Saudi Arabia is all about shoring up legitimacy overseas shoring up political legitimacy as a regional power because it's losing that at home. Um, And that's very deeply tied to the economy right now for Iran. Iran's economy is in dire straits. And this is also all about defending the rial, the currency, which has hit successive lows against the dollar for the past year. It's really a major crisis. So Iran can fight internal opposition using brutal... Force and executions to suppress protests, but it can't really do the same when it comes to a runaway economic crisis. What worries them more is economic turmoil and a type of economic collapse that they cannot control and that is completely out of their hands. So a lot of this, not just outreach with Saudi, although it's a big part of it, but also an effort to build this relationship with Russia, really try to push China to engage more when it comes to trade and economic ties with Iran, going to countries like Armenia. This is all about Iran trying to save itself from an economic crisis, and much more recently, a major crisis of legitimacy domestically.
1: And Sam, on the other side of the equation, why did Saudi Arabia want to renew ties with Iran right now?
3: The number one thing that Saudi Arabia, or to be more precise, Crown Prince Mohammed, the de facto ruler, cares about, is securing his 2030 vision. This multi-trillion-dollar project to reinvent uh, the kingdom's economy, turn it into a, a major tourism and business hub, and he felt that you know one one way to do it would be to make peace with Israel and have all these guarantees from the United States. He wasn't able to get those guarantees from the U.S. So he felt the next best thing at the moment to tamp down tensions, at least uh, in the short term, would be to make a deal with Iran that would be guaranteed by the Chinese. I mean, here, his logic is China being the the largest buyer of Iranian crude, they have more leverage over the Iranians to keep them in check. So really, that's the logic. And I would just add quickly that one person told me that the crown prince still has this quote-unquote visceral hatred from Iran. So let's keep in mind that these two countries are arch rivals.
1: Golnar Sam talked about Saudi's relationship with Israel. What does this agreement mean for the hostile relationship between Iran and Israel?
2: Yeah, I think, as you mentioned, obviously Iran and uh, Israel have been enemies, <laughs> to put it bluntly, for a very long time since you know, 1979 and the Islamic Revolution. From Iran's point of view, what this deal with Saudi Arabia does in terms of its relationship with Israel is it kind of puts a damper on Israel's recent effort to reach out to countries in the Persian Gulf. So we saw that with, obviously, the Abraham Accords with the UAE, which was a big deal in late 2020. I'm grateful to Crown Prince
0: Mohammed bin Zayed of the United Arab Emirates, And to you,
4: Foreign Minister Abdallah bin Zayed, I thank you both for your wise leadership and for working with the United States and Israel to expand the circle of peace. That's, of course,
1: Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu.
2: Iran does not want to see a normalization of relations between Israel and a country like the UAE. And I think what this deal does is that it kind of puts the brakes on any ideas that anyone may have that Riyadh may want to go down the same path.
3: Quickly, Golnar, if you remember, I mean, when the deal was announced, right, a lot of Israeli officials came out and said this is a disaster. And they blamed the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for really being responsible for this quote-unquote disaster. I mean, it was people from the opposition and also even people within his own coalition that said, you know, you blew it. We could have had a deal with Saudi Arabia, but look, now they're going into the arms of Iran.
2: No, I was just going to say, I think from the Saudi point of view, it makes a lot of sense from a security perspective.
1: Golnar, when you look ahead, How significant is this arrangement now between Saudi and Iran when it comes to relationships in the region and beyond?
2: It's a very good question. On the one hand, I think this is a really big deal. This can be hugely significant. Again, from the point of view of a reporter who's been covering the domestic turmoil and the protests in Iran for the past six months, looking at it from that prism, it was a kind of real sort of stroke of intelligence by the Iranian security establishment to get this deal while it was facing this massive, massive, major domestic crisis. On the other hand, when it comes to economics and trade, there are huge question marks over what Saudi can actually do. Iran is still under US sanctions. Saudi and the US are still allies, you know, and Saudi Arabia is going to be very restricted in what it can do economically and trade-wise with Iran with those sanctions. So that, for me, is a big question mark. And again, the other big question mark is, what is it going to do to Iran's footprint on the region in general? Is Iran going to scale back elsewhere in the region or not?
1: Sam, do you think both countries will follow through on this agreement?
3: They've spoken on the phone twice, the foreign ministers, and they're supposed to meet soon to discuss implementation of this agreement. And Iranians have spoken about an invitation from the King of Saudi Arabia to the President Raisi to visit Saudi Arabia, so it seems like there's a lot of goodwill here. But at the same time, there are a lot of spoilers. These two countries are facing one another on many fronts. I mean, Yemen being one, Syria is another place, and Lebanon. Saudi Arabia backing certain groups, and Iran backing other groups. In Iraq, obviously, the Saudis have great interest in investing in Iraq and getting closer to Iraq, but Iran obviously wants Iraq to remain within its sphere of influence or part of its orbit of, of influence. So you could see a number of places where things could go wrong, and Saudi Arabia and Iran could quickly blame one another, and
1: you could see this whole thing unravel. Sam, Golnar, thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
2: Thanks, Wes.
1: When we come back, China's key role in bringing Saudi and Iran back together.
0: The countdown has begun.
1: Now let's get a closer look at the other important player in this deal, China. Jonathan Fulton is a non-resident senior fellow for Atlantic Council's Middle East programs, and he's a specialist in China Middle East affairs. Jonathan, one of the surprises of this agreement was China's role in brokering it. Can you tell us how that came about and why it matters so much?
4: How it came about is going to be a really interesting history at some point. Right now, everybody's scrambling to, you know, pull all the threads together and try to figure out what the whole story is. Just a a little bit of background. So Xi Jinping went to Riyadh in December. It was a very, you know, uh, well-covered event. Uh, While he was there, there was talk about, you know, China's five-point plan for Middle East peace, which was announced in, I believe, March 2021. I think that was probably the seeds of it from the Saudi side. I I think that the Saudi government was probably asking Chinese government to get involved in this. I think that's the case because if you look at what happened during that same summit, China made a couple of statements about Gulf regional affairs that really didn't sit well with Tehran. Uh, One was about their take on how Iran's nuclear program was destabilizing for the region. The other thing was voicing support for the UAE's position on this disputed islands that uh, Iran has claimed since taking them in in the day the UAE became independent back in 71. The fact that China made those two statements seemed to really anger Tehran. They called in their the Chinese ambassador and and, and gave him a dressing down. And there's a lot of really strong statements. So I'm pretty certain that Iran wasn't involved at this point. This was something that just came up pretty recently. So what it looks like to me, and again, we're still waiting to find out what the whole story is, but it seems like this was a regional approach to a regional problem. And why it's interesting is because when they got basically to the point where it's time to dot the I's and cross the T's, instead of bringing in the U.S., which the Saudis normally would have done, they said, let's go to Beijing and uh, do this in China. Now, I believe the Saudis were keeping the Americans in the loop throughout the process, but it really does send a signal, you know, not just to China, Uh, but to, to the U.S. that, look, the region has a lot of different moving parts. The U.S. couldn't broker this deal because they don't have the relationship with Iran that you would need. And, you know, the U.S. State Department spokesperson has made this point, and every U.S. official, I think, has made the point over and over again. Good on China for doing this. We certainly couldn't. But then you see, you know, the Saudis have reached out to Russia to help facilitate this rapprochement with Syria. So what you're seeing is a region where... There's a lot of regional issues, which everybody's very well aware of. And typically the default has been to rely on extra regional powers, usually the U.S., to you know play a leading role. And now they're saying, look, we'll deal with this stuff on our own, but let's bring in these extra regional powers like Russia, like China, to help facilitate it so they've got some skin in the game. And also just to show that you know the region is changing and it's not just a U.S. lake anymore.
1: What does China get out of this? They've traditionally not involve themselves in this way. And now Xi Jinping seems to be doing it quite a bit.
4: Yeah, he certainly does. He's making making things exciting for those of us who focus on Chinese foreign policy. What is trying to get out of a more stable Gulf is what I think most of us get out of it. You know, China gets between 40 and 50 percent of its crude oil imports from the Gulf. They just signed this 27-year deal with Qatar for a liquefied natural gas imports, Both of this is very important for China's economic growth, for its own energy security. Um, Beyond the energy, which is obvious, I think, to most of us when we think about the Gulf, Regional countries have been engaged in these economic diversification projects for quite a while. You hear about Saudi Vision 2030 or New Kuwait 2035. All of these vision programs are about getting beyond a single resource economy. How do you get past this energy-dependent economy and build something more long-term? And that's required a lot of uh, foreign direct investment. It's involved a lot of uh, infrastructure construction. It's involved a lot of other countries, companies coming in here and helping them develop this stuff. And of course, if you look at China's Belt and Road Initiative, this stuff lines up very, very neatly. There's a synergy between what China's been doing internationally and what Gulf countries need. They also, it's an important region in global Islam, of course, and China's got a very big Muslim population. So working closely with a country like Saudi can help them when they're dealing with certain domestic pressures with their uh, Muslim population. So the relations here are pretty deep so for china it's definitely in their interest to have a more stable gulf they don't want to have to deal with a region that's constantly on the precipice of conflict when somebody attacked saudi aramco in september 2019 China ended up spending about 97 million dollars a day extra for the same amount of oil that's around the time that the us was applying maximum pressure on iran putting deeper sanctions on iran to change its economic uh, behavior also america had pulled out of the nuclear deal with iran that was something that beijing had been involved in the negotiations of to a degree that most folks don't really recognize but they were applying a lot of their political leverage in iran in the lead-up to that project or that that deal rather so i think china looked at the region as quite important to them and they looked at america's role as something that didn't necessarily serve chinese interests in the way it typically had in the past and I think there became this new logic of we have to play a bigger role in securing our interests in this region. We certainly can not depend on the U.S., our chief competitor, especially at a time when the trade war is in full force and the relationship between China and the U.S. has just reached what at the time looked like its lowest point, certainly since then it's gotten lower.
1: How much do you think the calculation from Beijing was Xi Jinping wanting to show that China is a viable alternative to the U.S., that the East is a viable alternative to the West when it comes to this sort of diplomacy?
4: Absolutely. That's such an important point, and it's something that we really have to understand. In, I believe, April of last year, they announced the Global Security Initiative. And this is China saying, look, we have... Maybe not all the answers, but we have some answers to contribute to global security. That that global is an important point. They're saying that the way that the West has handled global security initiatives has largely focused on the military or traditional security approach. China says that their approach is more focused on development issues. They think they've got something to help the world with, especially the global South, especially countries in Africa and the Middle East that have been on the outside of a lot of the um, development that we've seen over the past few decades.
1: Given all of what you have just said, how does this complicate the situation in Israel, especially between Israel and the Palestinians?
4: Very much so. Now, it was interesting to me, I live in Abu Dhabi, watching how the region has been changing over the past month or so. Five days before this series of meetings between China, the Saudis, and the Iranians was announced, the Wall Street Journal broke a story that Saudi was willing to consider joining the Abraham Accords And here's the price tag. They wanted certain concessions, especially from the U.S., especially from Israel, if they're going to do this thing that was very, very difficult for them. And it was interesting to me because obviously for Prime Minister Netanyahu, this would have been a tremendous feather in his cap. To have the biggest, most consequential Arab state that hadn't yet established diplomatic relations with Israel, to have the Saudis come in would have made this all worthwhile. And it would have been hard for Saudi Arabia to do. I don't think it's done yet, but it's something that there's tremendous diplomatic pressure in a lot of countries in the region to not do this. And the Saudis have always said that support for Palestine is one of the key pillars of their regional policy. They don't want to uh, undermine the Palestinians. So it looked like when the Saudis were saying, we're warming up to this idea of, of establishing relations with Israel, that seemed to be something that would have hardened the regional security atmosphere. This would have been creating an even stronger coalition of Arab countries working with Israel, balancing against Iran. And while that would've probably given extra weight to those countries, it also wouldn't have done anything to lower the temperatures in the region, because if anything, it would've gotten even more hostile, I think, towards Iran, which would've forced Iran to uh, behave aggressively in turn. It's interesting that, you know, five days later, the Saudis did something completely different and said, we're going to try to work with Iran and why this could be cause for for optimism in the region is when you look at a lot of the pressures in the Middle East, the war in Yemen, you know, like the Saudis have been wanting to solve this for a while. You can't solve it by just talking to the Yemenis. You have to bring in Iran. A lot of the really difficult issues that the Saudis were facing, Tehran offers a path to alleviating some of those pressures. So it seemed like a pretty smart move to me. And again, I don't think this means that the door to Saudi entering the Abraham Accord, I don't think that door is closed yet, but it certainly got a lot more complicated. And the fact that the Israeli domestic situation has gotten so complex in recent weeks, uh, I think that makes it a lot harder for regional actors, regional Arab countries to say, yeah, we're going to sign a deal with Israel right now, because I think they look at the situation in Israel and think it's not looking any better for the Palestinians right now. So why would we jump in at this particular moment?
1: More with Jonathan Fulton after the break.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies, from big tech to startups, will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang.
1: Yet another relationship that this agreement seems to complicate is the very fraught relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia.
4: Yeah, you know, we could just sit here and name all the countries for the rest of this episode because it complicates everything. But, yeah, it certainly does. With the U.S.-Saudi relationship, while President Biden was campaigning, he made it pretty clear that he had some very strong thoughts about the Saudi government. He said he would turn them into a pariah state.
3: And I would make it very clear, we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are.
4: And also the U.S. government under President Biden put a big uh, focus on democracy promotion as part of their foreign policy policy as somebody's watching from outside, I think that looked like, how do we consolidate a, a block of countries that feel threatened by China? Western liberal democracies that were threatened by China during the Trump administration, when the U.S. wasn't acting as a leader in this front. You could see Australia, Canada, the U.K., Europe, all were quite fragmented in their approach to China at the time. And I thought that this democracy promotion was a way to say, look, we've got this Something in common with all these countries, let's create a block of countries with similar concerns and we can create a united front against China. I don't think that recognized, obviously, the allies and partners the U.S. has that aren't democratic. And in the Gulf in particular, uh, that wasn't taken uh, very lightly. There's always a concern in the Middle East that the U.S. is leaving. So for the Saudis, where the central pillar of their foreign and security policy since the mid-1940s has been cooperation with the U.S., And then to think okay the u.s uh, is consistent in its foreign policy towards the region from one administration to the next it seems to see you get kind of a general bipartisan consensus that the saudi government isn't much loved by the democrats or the republicans outside of the trump family i think the saudis probably looked at the u.s and thought you know hey we've been an important partner to you for a long time why would you forget all that over you know some political problems
1: do you think that behind closed doors, the U.S. does think that this is to their advantage?
4: I think they probably do with the proviso that, that no doubt they're a little worried about what it means long term. Um, I don't think anybody's being disingenuous. So uh, When they say that this is something that contributes to regional security, you can find any number of American leaders, presidents, or, or you know, senators, or, or whatever, saying over decades, we would like to see China playing a more robust role in regional issues or global issues. You know, China's certainly benefited from international order that's allowed, or facilitated rather, their uh, dramatic growth and transformation. It's time for you to start doing more to pay forward a bit. So I think the U.S. government probably does see this as something, an example of China contributing a public good that really only China could, But at the same time, I think everybody's a little leery about, does China really believe that it has the answers to all these regional problems? Because it's not something, obviously, one country can't do it. America hasn't been able to do it, despite all of the resources and talent and relationships they have. So as a relative newcomer, it would be very presumptuous to assume that China can step in and say, yeah, yeah, we'll fix this. What are you looking
1: for in the months and years ahead?
4: So one of the things I'm watching, obviously, is that Within the region, uh, China's presence has been growing. Its interests have been growing. It's got a lot of assets. It's got a lot of expatriate citizens. It does a lot of business. And the expectation has always been, given this depth of, of, of uh, Chinese engagement in the region, is it going to step up its, its presence beyond the economic, beyond the political and, and start contributing to regional security? That is complex because if china were to do this you know you see a lot of other countries that have interests in the middle east like the europeans the uk india japan korea those are all u.s allies or partners when they contribute to regional security they tend to do so in a, in a manner that aligns with american interests the fact that china is not a u.s ally or, or partner but its chief rival means that if china were to come into the region and start contributing to regional security it probably would do so in a way that wouldn't necessarily align with America's interests. But then just looking back at an even bigger scale, a lot of countries across the Indo-Pacific have deep interests here as well. Most of them work with America very closely on security issues, on political issues, and a lot of them have trouble with China, whether this is India or Japan or, you know, any number of countries. And a lot of them have deep interests here as well in the Gulf or in the Middle East.
1: Jonathan Fulton, thanks for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Federica Romanello is our producer. Our associate producer is Zeneb Siddiqui. Rafael Amsili is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another big take.